uh, so like we've mentioned, this is a season called Lent. And our practice as a community has been to use this season to press into some of the more challenging parts of being human. Uh, we've taken a cue from the way the season begins, which is with ashes on our foreheads, embracing our mortality. And we've called this out of the ashes. And we're looking for the beauty hiding in our most difficult experiences. So we came out of the gate swinging the first week, and we talked about mortality. It's for a good time. Uh, and we explored the possibility that facing our mortality has a gift within it, and that the small deaths that we embrace in our day-to-day -day life are the things that actually enlarge us and lead us into a deeper capacity to trust God. And then we talked about unknowing and doubt last week and tried to celebrate that there might be something good and beautiful hiding in those moments when we actually say, I don't know. And you might not know how the whole picture fits together or how God fits into anything or what you believe about this or that. And whereas I think a lot of communities like ours might try to invest themselves in certainty, uh, we read the scriptures and we actually see lots and lots of unknowing expressed in the journey of all these characters in scripture. Even Jesus on the cross who cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? And so we're trying to take our cue from that and, and take seriously the experience of unknowing and to look for the good that might be hidden there. And today we'll just thought we'd keep the string if it's going with another difficult experience. Um, by the way, one of the reasons I, I feel so strongly about this is because of what we see in the scriptures, which is that if, if you actually take the Bible as a whole, what you find there is this, this spacious spirituality that seems to have room in it for every part of being human, right? The good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, you find all of it there. And our, our job is to cooperate with that and to sort of open that up as a community so we can find our whole lives a part of the journey that God has us on rather than just the endorsed parts, right, or just the acceptable parts. So that's, that's a lot of why we're doing that. Now, one of the places in the Scripture where it seems like most clear that God's inviting us into this big, spacious spirituality that has room for all of our experiences is the Psalms, the prayer book of the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. So the Psalms are 150 different songs or prayers that were compiled by the Israelite people. Uh, some of these would have been the actual script of their liturgy when, when the people of Israel worshipped at the temple. Some of these are very personal, very individual sorts of prayers that seem to come from very vulnerable moments in an individual's life. But if the Psalms as a whole, they, they seem to have everything in it, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. And today I want to turn to the Psalms uh, to help us explore one of these difficult things. Now, uh, when people look at the Psalms, they, they've over the centuries tried to not just see what's happening in individual Psalms, but different commentators throughout the ages have asked whether there's an arc to the whole, to the whole journey of the Psalms, whether the 150 have any kind of journey built into them, or whether you can sort of break out the whole thing. And one of those interpreters, uh, this is going back to the fourth century, to a, a person named Hilary of Portier, Drop that at a dinner party, you'll sound really smart. Hilary of Portier in the 4th century, a uh, saint of the church, said that in, in the Psalms, you basically have three big movements of the Christian life. Hilary said the first 50 Psalms represent baptism and the experience of baptism. He said the second 50 Psalms represent the experience of resurrection, of new life coming out of that. And then the third 50 Psalms represent the transformation that comes on the other side of resurrection. That was his way of working that out. Now, that's interesting to me because I've, I've looked at his breakdown, and then I've looked at the Psalms, and Psalm 51 would be the beginning of the movement that he calls resurrection. And I want to show you what Psalm 51 says, because it doesn't feel like resurrection to me. I just want to work this out with you for a bit. Here's Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Amen? Doesn't it feel that great, does it? Doesn't it feel like, like hot dog, Easter, new life, right? Like you don't get that energy from this psalm. In fact, right now, depending on your experience of words like transgressions, um, confession, like you might be having some really uncomfortable feelings right now. Maybe you've bumped into this kind of language in religion or spirituality and it hasn't felt very good to you. I want to work out this difficult experience that's being named here. Now, Psalm 51 is interesting because uh, some of the psalms, like Psalm 51, have, have some details around them that help us locate the prayer in a story. And Psalm 51 is one of the prayers that's located in a story from elsewhere in the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically the story of a guy named David. Now, some of you uh, will have some connection or awareness of David, some won't, but David is one of the most important characters in all of Scripture. Uh, in the landscape of the story of Israel, he looms large. He's the king that brings all of Israel together. And every other king after him, every sort of future aspiration that Israel has is, could we get back to the way things were when David was king? Because that's when we knew who we are and we felt like God had his hand on us and we were going where we wanted to go, right? So David's big in the story of Israel. And in fact, the New Testament, some of the writers work hard to help us understand Jesus in the mold of David. So that's, that's pretty high praise for the importance of David, right? Now, David is a delightfully complicated character. I say delightful because I'm complicated and you're probably complicated, and it's easier to find myself in stories of complicated characters, right? So David, uh, early in his story, he's kind of the runt of the litter. He's very unimpressive. He has older, stronger brothers who are off doing the battling on behalf of Israel while David is relegated to the field where he's a shepherd. The shepherd job is um, just picture the most demeaning, uninteresting job that you, you might think would be given to a person who doesn't have many hopes for their life. That's shepherding in that culture and time. So that's how David's story starts. But along the way, we keep getting all these little marks of something exceptional about David. At one point, David is uh, called to the king's presence, King Saul, to play music for him. He plays a harp to help King Saul's demons be settled so that he can sleep peacefully. At another point, I tried this joke on Thursday. It didn't work very well. We found out that David had some pluck play the harp? It's fine. It's fine. Whatever. Um, David has some pluck, some, some assurance about himself because the Israelites are there at the, at the battle lines of a fight and the enemy has sent their champion out to the, the front lines. This is David and Goliath, right? And Goliath is taunting the Israelites. And it's the runt named David who shows up and sees that all of his older brothers and everybody else is standing there in fear. And he says, I'll take this guy on. And in fact, he does. And that's that whole episode with the slingshot and the stone that takes the giant down, right? So David uh, is an artist and he has a heart of a warrior and eventually he becomes king. And there's moments when the scripture really lauds David. It says that David has a, a, a heart, or he's a man after God's own heart. And then there's moments where David just seems like a really terrible person, frankly. And this psalm is located in one of those moments where David is not at his best. There's a, a moment in the story where we read that the kings have gone off to war, but David hasn't, which is sort of a way of saying that he's abdicated his responsibility for his people. So he's back at home resting on his laurels, and he looks out across the city, and he sees a woman who's bathing, which is where you would do your bathing on the rooftop there. And uh, he has this lustful desire to possess her, and so he sends people to bring her to him. And he has his way with her, and then he has her husband murdered. Her husband's in the military, and he tells his generals, I want you to 
go to the front lines with this guy there and then pull back and leave him exposed so he'll be killed by the enemy. All of that happens, and uh, now we're getting close to the moment where Psalm 51 is expressed in David's life. Let me take you to 2 Samuel chapter 12, where we read this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. If this were happening today, the dude would have had a stroller for his puppy, right? <laughs> Get it? Yeah. Now, a traveler came to the rich man. And by the way, in this culture, when a traveler shows up to stay at your place, you have an, a moral obligation to show the best kind of hospitality and to put out an extravagant meal for your guest, right? So a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. So instead of taking from his abundance, from his riches, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, and I always misread this. I'm always wanting to read like, you're the man. But that's not the tone here, right? <laughs> it's you. You're the one. That righteous indignation that you feel inside right now, David, that's rightfully directed toward yourself. You were the king, man. You, you had your hands on whatever you wanted. And you took this woman from this man. You had the man killed. You're, you're the man. Your greed, your lust, your uh, abuse of your power, you're the man. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Right there is where you locate Psalm 51. That's where the prayer opens up in David's life. Have mercy on me, God. Blot out my transgressions. My sin is before me, Right? Today, the difficult experience I want to talk about is simply the awakening that happens when you realize you're wrong. I'm wrong. I just want to work with that for a bit. It doesn't feel good to wake up and realize you're wrong, right? Whether it's an act that you've committed in the past that you look back on and now you realize it wasn't the right thing to do, or maybe it's a way of relating to somebody in your life, your spouse, your partner, family, friends, neighbors, maybe you're relating in a way, maybe the posture that you brought to that relationship isn't right, it's wrong. Maybe it's a pattern of behavior, just it's a way that you walk through the world. It's uh, a repeated thing that at first didn't seem like that big of a deal, but now that that pattern of behavior has worked its way into your life, you, you realize it's not the right way to live. It's not the right way to be. Maybe you realize that you're headed in the wrong direction. And if you keep going in that direction, you'll end up in the wrong place. Maybe you realize you are becoming the wrong kind of person. Maybe you've invested yourself in the wrong kind of work. There's lots of different ways this plays out. But underneath it all is, is just this sort of painful, uncomfortable awakening that says I'm wrong. Today we want to talk about that for a little bit. And we, we actually want to look for the beauty hidden in that particularly difficult experience. It's um, the beauty that we, is waiting for us on the other side of laying down our pride, the beauty that's waiting for us on the other side of admitting like what we've done. We want to talk about this, but I want to use some words for it um, that I think can be really uncomfortable for some of us. Uh, words that show up in the scriptures and that show up in Christian history when we press into this experience of realizing you're wrong. 
words uh, that I'm afraid um, have sometimes been used to really hurt people or abuse people, words that might feel like they have sharp edges on them for you. So I want to do this um, thoughtfully and as tenderly as possible, but I want to move into these words because I actually think they're really important words for anyone that wants to be fully human, fully alive. So these three words, uh, they often come together, right? I want to talk about conviction, sin, and repentance. Some of you are probably like, yeah, great, those are good words. And others are probably like, oh, man. I feel like every time I've heard those words used by a person like Jay on a stage like that, they've been used to manipulate, to abuse. They've been used to tell you it's bad to be you. They've been used to shame you, to make you hang your head. You ever, like, get the impression that the person up here who's doing the talking about words like this, like, like is somehow a little too excited <laughs> about like naming these things in your life like you ever you ever felt that way i've felt that way um not not excited about no i've, I've been in your seat felt that way when somebody else was talking <laughs> just to be clear uh, but I, I don't know how to um, not name these things because i think these words are actually really beautiful important words for us let me just work through this for a little bit conviction might have been the act of somebody like me just trying to like hammer you and tell you that it's bad to be you. Sin might have been the, the word that you think identifies you, that says this is actually what it means to be whoever you are. And repentance might have been about trying to like stir up some emotion or like, or like, like just the act of hanging your head and proactively shaming yourself. But I think there's actually something completely different going on in these three words. When we talk about conviction, think about David's experience for a moment when Nathan comes to him. Uh, Nathan is the prophet. Nathan is the man of God bringing the word of God filled with the presence of God. So let's start right there. Realize that when Nathan comes to David, that's like God is turning toward David, moving toward David in this moment, right? The power of naming sin, as far as I can understand, is to wake up and realize that once you name it, you can also say, that's not me. I mean, that would be the power and the beauty of naming sin is to say, that's actually not the truest version of me, right? And repentance, uh, repentance uh, in the Hebrew has a sense of return. In the Greek in the New Testament, it has a sense of changing your mind, of waking up, of realizing you don't have to keep going in that direction. You don't have to become that kind of person. You could actually go the other way. Now, now watch this. If you're experiencing conviction of sin and feel invited to repent, it seems that God has actually like moved toward you and said, I actually believe in you more than you believe in you right now, and I don't want you to keep going in the wrong direction. I want you to go in the right direction. Like, what a gift. Like, like what a profoundly beautiful thing to wake up one day and realize that you're not on your own in who you are becoming. What a beautiful thing to, to wake up and realize there are energies beyond you, that God is with you, actually concerned about who you are becoming and where you are going. And when you are wrong, he's trying to help you get right. Like, what a gift to wake up to that experience. Now, I think the problem is a lot of us have fears built into this. A lot of us have been taught some bad theology around the experience of conviction. And I actually think the bad theology shows up in David's psalm. Hang with me for a minute. Uh, let me show you a little later in Psalm 51 what David says. And I'm going to take issue with what David says. And I'm, I'm going to try to make my case for it and see what you think. So David says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. I want to zero in for a moment on... Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. 
I understand why David prays that prayer, but I think it actually reveals how confused we are about God and us in the experience of conviction of sin and repentance. Uh, hang with me for a moment, okay? Um, in the fourth century, a commentator, or sorry, in the fifth century, a commentator named Augustine said that the Psalms are like an anatomy of the soul. In uh, about a thousand years later, uh, a lawyer in Geneva named John Calvin says they're like a mirror showing us ourselves. They say that's what the Psalms are doing. So when you read the Psalms, you've got to you've got to be thoughtful about this. You've got to ask yourself, what what is, what truth is being revealed by these Psalms here? Is this moment in the Psalms like a lens that's showing me something true about God, or is it like a mirror that's reflecting something ugly about myself, right? So for example, when the psalmist in another chapter of Psalms prays, God, I pray that you would take my enemy's babies and smash them against the rocks. I don't think that's the God view on that. Like, I don't think that that's revealing God's disposition toward that person's enemies. I think that's revealing our vengeful energies. And the mirror is the thing that helps us change sometimes, right? It helps us see this ugly thing that stirs up in our spirits that we might want to walk away from or reject. This happens often in the Psalms. And it takes some interpretive work to ask ourselves, is this showing us the God view or is this a mirror showing us the ugly things that bubble up in us when we're broken, when we're falling apart? I think the fear that God would reject you, that God would cast you out of God's presence, that God would turn God's back on you, that God would run away from you, I think that's being held up to us as a mirror so we can realize that though those feelings come up often when we're confronted with what we've done wrong, I don't think they tell the truth about God. I actually think the opposite is true of God, and conviction reminds us that God doesn't back away from us when we're wrong. God turns toward us when we are wrong. I say this especially because uh, we call ourselves a Jesus-centered community, which means if you want to check the math on your theology, you go to Jesus, and you ask yourself, what do you see there? That, that would be a core conviction for this community. And with Jesus, what I see again and again and again and again is not, not that he's like so offended by how wrong we are that he can't stand the sight of us or the smell of us or doesn't want to be with us, but like precisely the opposite, that God moves toward us. I mean, Jesus is constantly being accused by religious people of hanging out with the wrong people who are on the wrong path doing the wrong things. And that's actually where the Christian tradition locates the activity of God, moving toward the people who are the wrong people, doing the wrong things on the wrong path. Not, not turning back, not so offended, not plugging his nose, but like moving toward in love. In fact, I actually think it's the case that we spend a lot of our fear worried that God is going to cast us out of God's presence or reject us or turn God's back on us, when in reality, we are the ones who like preemptively reject God, afraid that he would do the same to us. We're the ones that like bring these kinds of assumptions together. I think David's flat out wrong when he says, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I think that's a mirror showing us just how confused we can become about the character of God. I don't think shame and rejection are God's ideas. I think they are our ideas. I think there are fears manifested in the worst kind of way. And sometimes preachers like me stand on stages like this and leverage that to manipulate you, to hurt you, to make you afraid, because maybe making you afraid will get you to change your act. But that's not actually true, is it? Not in the long run. I mean, we can make one another afraid for a moment and change some behaviors, but we only heal with love, right? And I think the beauty of conviction, of sin and repentance, is to discover that that voice that whispers to you and says, hey, you might be wrong about this, is the voice that is cheering for you to turn around and get it right. It's the voice that's cheering for you to become who you are here to be, right? 
And I have, I have evidence for this, okay? So in the New Testament, in Luke 15, Jesus tells a series of parables. These are sort of metaphorical stories. And each of these parables is a story about somebody who was on the wrong path ending up on the right path. Somebody who's becoming the wrong kind of person becoming the right kind of person. Somebody turning around and coming back to God and to the life of God's kingdom. Each of these stories in Luke 15 tells the story of somebody wrong who finds their way back to being right. And I'm not going to take you through the actual parables, but I want you to sense the the feeling that saturates Luke 15, the overwhelming sensation that Jesus describes that characterizes the experience of waking up and repenting and turning around. Because if you listen, you won't hear shame anywhere in Luke 15. You won't hear rejection anywhere in Luke 15. See what you do here. The first story that he tells is of a man who was shepherding sheep, and one of the sheep gets away, and then the sheep finds its way back to the flock when the shepherd goes out and finds it. And in response to this experience, we read in Luke 15, 5, when he finds the sheep, he he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. A couple of sentences later, we read this. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Next parable he tells is about a woman who's lost a very valuable coin. By the way, notice that Jesus uses the language of value, of worth, of something worth pursuing when he tells stories that represent you and me, Right? Well, he says uh, at the end of the story about the coin, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, who turns around, who goes from wrong to right, who, who comes back, right? And then the last story Jesus tells is the one that is perhaps a little more famous you might be familiar with. We call it often the prodigal, of, the prodigal son story, right? Where a son in rampant rebellion, shakes his fist at his father, leaves the house, and goes on the wrong path, doing the wrong things, becoming the wrong kind of person. And he wakes up one day, and he says, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm wrong. And then he turns around and decides to come home. And Jesus says at the end of the story, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. When Jesus tells stories about people who wake up and realize they are wrong, he doesn't talk about shame or rejection or the threat that God would turn his back on them. He talks about overwhelming joy. Like as if God is more invested in you becoming whole than, than, than you are. As if God is more excited about you finding your way back than you are. As if the voice that convicts you isn't one who is trying to beat you down, but rather one who is like, like just rooting for you to get it right. Like come back, be who you are. Be who you're meant to be. Do what you're actually here to do. Like, turn around. I, I don't think God is here to shame or reject. I think we came up with that. When David prays and says, cast me not from your presence, I picture God experiencing a combination of amusement and heartbrokenness that David could be so confused about God's disposition toward a sinner. And I think God is actually, like, rooting for us to turn around and get it right. Now, if you have ever been confronted with what's wrong in your life and felt overwhelmed at the task of getting it right. If you've ever thought, man, I I just have this struggle that I'm having a really hard time working out, or I I keep doing the same broken thing, or, man, that that wound that I caused goes pretty deep, and I, I don't know if I can make it right. If you've ever had that cumbersome feeling that to go from wrong to right would be really, really hard, I don't know better news than the promise that you're not on your own in the turning that you're not on your own in coming home. That the the very voice that, that began to turn you is also the presence that's with you 
that's going to walk with you on that journey of getting right. Like, I don't know better news than that. I mentioned at the beginning of this that Psalm 51 is the first psalm that Hilary of Portier said marks resurrection in the scriptures. And at first, when I, when I read that psalm, I think that doesn't sound very resurrection-y to me. <laughs> Sounds kind of negative to me. Except I wonder if the wisdom in Hillary's idea is that you, you, you are actually on the threshold of a new and more beautiful and enduring life, which is what we call resurrection, right? You are on the threshold of a new, more beautiful, more enduring kind of life. When you open your heart to that sort of tender experience where a voice whispers to you and says, you might be wrong in your posture and the way that you're walking and what you've done and who you're becoming, it's the same voice that says, I'm here to help you make it right. So this week, um, we want to wrestle with this question. Is there any way that we're wrong? We want to welcome what we would call conviction. It's actually a very like traditional Lenten thing to do. We want to maybe proactively invite the voice who would direct our attention to some act or pattern or behavior, some way that a relationship has been framed, something that we're a part of that's wrong, and see if God wants to help us awaken to that and turn around and walk the other way. I think you'll actually find that on the other side of some repentance, that life becomes far more hopeful and beautiful, and that it becomes a little easier to trust that God is a part of the project of who we are becoming. Um, that's, that's a really beautiful thing. So, uh, I hope you hear me. Like, the heart in this is not to shame anyone. It's precisely the opposite. We don't want these words to have hurtful edges the way they might have had for you, but we don't want to lose them. Because who on earth would want to stop hearing the voice that says, I want to help you turn around, right? So um, we want to put some questions in front of us and just sit with them for a moment before we come forward to the communion table. And... Uh, I wouldn't presume to tell you what's wrong or right in your life, um, but we'll create some space for you to hear what you need to hear today, right? So uh, I'll read these questions for us, and then we'll sit with them for a couple of minutes before I come back up and lead us in a brief prayer, and then we'll uh, share the table of Jesus together. But let's meditate on these questions. Is there anything in your life right now that invites you to say, I'm wrong? Is there any pattern that needs to end? Is there anything wrong that you're a part of, even if you didn't actively choose the wrong? You didn't make the decision, you didn't commit the act, but you're, you're a part of something that's wrong. Are there any hurtful or unhelpful acts that need acknowledged in your life? Is there any relationship that needs reconciled? Do you need to write a note, pick up the phone, meet up for coffee and look somebody in the eye and just say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Uh, let's take a moment with these questions um, before we pray a prayer together and come to Jesus' table.
we, uh, we want to borrow from our Anglican brothers and sisters a prayer of confession that's a, a part of their liturgy. And uh, if, you, if you want to make this your prayer, I'll just invite you that you can put these words on your lips as I put them on my own. And then out of this prayer, uh, we'll prepare ourselves for Jesus' table. But let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And then let me say to you, Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. And we all said, amen. Let me invite uh, those who are going to serve you to come forward to the stage. And today, perhaps, uh, this communion meal can be for us um, a reminder that God doesn't back away from us in a fence, but rather comes and dwells in our midst even when we're wrong and invites us to a homecoming meal. Uh, this perhaps would be for us a reminder that when God did walk in our midst, he didn't reject us, we rejected him, which makes me think that shame and rejection might be more our invention than God's. Uh, maybe you need to bring a silent confession to the table today and simply getting up out of your seat and walking to the table would be a way of saying... I'm wrong and I'm sorry. And maybe even more than that, it would be a hopeful meal. And you'd remember that you're not alone in the project of who you are becoming. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends and he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And he took this cup and he said, this is the cup of a covenant. A covenant means a faithfulness that you cannot exhaust. It means God's saying, I'm not giving up on you, even when you've given up on me, even when you've given up on yourself. And I might keep whispering to you about who you really are and where you want to go. You can trust the faithfulness of God and the love of God with this cup. So God, I pray that these elements would be for us today, the life of Jesus given for the world. I pray it'd be a healing meal for anyone who needs to know that shame and rejection are our ideas, not yours. I pray it'd be a humbling meal for all of us who need to say with a sober mind and an open heart that we're wrong in some way. I pray that it'd be a meal of faith or trust that you're with us as we return. I pray these things through Christ. We all said, amen. It's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. 
body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Uh, now these guys will go to the corners and then when they're there, you're welcome to get up out of your seat as you'd like and come forward to the table.
Uh, this is not the kind of community that believes that you need uh, an endorsed official to talk to, to like absolve yourself of anything. Uh, but we do believe that, um, that we are much better when we walk in community. And so we just struck a, a number of us that maybe this week is one of those weeks where if you feel a little stirred up about something or if you're processing something, you might want to talk to someone. So maybe it's the person you came to church with today on the ride home, or maybe it's a spouse or a partner or a friend that you trust. But if you're not sure who that would be, um, we also are like really happy to be that community for you. So if you wanted to talk to someone about just whatever's going on with you today, uh, if you see anyone with a lanyard, like our greeter team, they're probably well positioned to point out our pastoral team uh, who are lurking in the room and you may not know where they are. Um, but yeah, if you wanna talk, we'd love to talk. Um, otherwise, may you know that shame and rejection are perhaps more our problem than God's. When the voice of conviction speaks to you, may you hold your head high knowing that God deems you so worthy to be brought back that he would speak to you and turn toward you. May you find that grace and peace are with you this week. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week. Amen.